Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you today? Hi, Ross. I'm doing well. How about you? Fine. The banana is no longer on the Chromebook, but there is a fork or a spoon over there. Oh, yeah. Did you eat the banana with the spoon? And... I should have. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, Tom had a banana on his Chromebook, and he was telling us about how he had to modify the Chromebook to get the banana to fit. Well, I had to modify the Chromebook to install Debian Linux on it. And then I put the banana on top of the Chromebook for no reason other than to entertain Russ. So. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah. And it worked. And today we have with us Mike Bouchon, who is quite famous in the circles I care about anyway. <laughs> yes. So so Mike, you're in where? You're not you're not in SFO, you're in not in LA anymore, right? You're in. I'm in San Diego. I San live Diego. in La Jolla. Okay. Another one of those sands. The beach is like an eight minute walk that direction. Yeah, nice. that's nice. I am now out in the woods and far, far, far away from the beach. But that has its own charms being out in the woods. And so uh, we'll see. I kind of wish I would have bought a smaller house on a bigger piece of property when I did this, but that's okay. You know, a friend of mine just moved to a small house on 22 acres, and I thought, Wow, yeah, 22 acres would be kind of nice. But anyway, so today we are talking about career ladders. I suppose that's where we should start. So Mike, you know, start, I guess, with what you tell people about this. By the way, Mike is is more of a person who cares about people's careers than he is a person who cares about chipsets. So that's a good thing to me. To me, that's a really good thing. Because chipsets come and go, but people, you know, people are kind of permanent. So that's a fact. Let me let me start with a little bit of background just in how I build organizations because I think it sets the context for this discussion. So uh, I build organizations in a, a somewhat unorthodox way. I, I think that you get breakthrough contributions from people who are deep specialists, right? So I actually hire people who have zero, like I work at a vendor. I have um, I will hire people who have zero vendor experience. Uh, they have zero you know, product experience, but I'll bring them in because they have some specialized skill that I think is is you know very unique. It's not matched you know, really anywhere else in the industry. And that's a, a risky thing to do. If you bring these people into a an organization, you know, that that's basically built around a, a function that they have no experience in, they might or might not make a contribution. So what I do is I surround my specialists with generalists. And the idea is that the, the combination of them, you know, give me asymmetric returns. They give me a very high return on investment. And that's what gives me permission to, to participate in the upside of an organization. So that's how I, I fundamentally build organizations. Now, not everybody will, will find their way into these contributions. So it's not like a 100% hit rate. Um, but if just a couple of people hit, what you get is these unusual contributions that really move not just the company, but frankly, the entire industry forward. With that in mind, then I, I kind of view careers, you know, a little bit differently than many do, right? I would say that the conventional way to view a career is fairly straightforward. Most of us, we talk about, I mean, literally, we say the words career ladder, 
right? And the idea is you're going to move up the ladder one rung at a time, one step. And, and, and in fact, if you want to move up and someone's on the rung above you, you essentially have to wait until they die or leave, and then you can kind of take their spot. What I tell my team is that, you know, don't think about your career as a ladder. Think of your career more as like a rock climbing wall, right? If you want to move up, sometimes you can move up. But sometimes if you want to make progress, you got to move left. Maybe you got to move right. In some some instances, you actually have to move down in order to move around an obstacle. But but if you look at that, then, then that view of it as a rock climbing wall, it, it, it fundamentally changes, you know, how you look at things like, you know, progression, how you look at, at skills. And so that's kind of the, the way I frame it up for my for the folks on my team. And there's a bunch of implications that, that fall from that. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, when you're on the rock climbing wall, it's much easier to knock someone off than when you're on a ladder. So that's <laughs> that's one advantage of your view. <laughs> wow. It's pretty dark, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing that I would think of there is that in history, it seems to me like most great inventions have not happened because someone studied a problem more deeply than anyone else did. It's more likely that the Stroger switch that invented the entire modern telephony system and Charlotte Clough and, and even SPF was designed by Dijkstra not to solve routing problems. It was designed to show off the, the capabilities of a six-bit computer, right? And then somebody looked at it and went, oh, you could use that for shortest path first, right? But all these things happen at the edges. I mean, the Stroger switch is invented by an undertaker who is sick of the sick of the competition's wife sending all the dead bodies to his competitor. And, you know, it's really stupid things like that. But it always is that these things, really brilliant things happen at the edges between things, never down the center of anything. So that just seems like a big thing to me about the way careers work and the way in, in, uh, innovation happens. I don't know if you have an experience in that area, Mike. Or, yeah, sorry. I, Mike, I agree with that. I mean, so actually, I saw a thing about like about Dyson, you know, with the the vacuums and and now hair dryers and and how that came about. And it turns out, rather than using propellers, you know, he looked at how you use. I think it was in like mining and mills where they use the the screws and they move things up. And so it changed the entire propulsion system. And that's how he has like higher performing stuff. That that observation never would have come from an institutional you know thinker who was you know kind of. You know, used to the conventions of of how this stuff worked, so I like I agree with you. I think it's everywhere we we everywhere we look. In our specific space, by the way, you know we're going through what I think is a, a big strategic inflection point. The the networking was generally defined by by protocols and architectures for like the last you know say twenty twenty five years, um, and so the contributions that the people that move it forward are the set of people who are like in IETF and and you know working on the RFCs that are that are essentially you know driving the internet as we shift from you know architecture to operations it's a different set of contributions that come that, that are going to come in and that's not to say that architecture doesn't matter by the way that stuff still is still going to evolve there's still problems to solve there but there's this whole new wave of of operational requirements that's going to be solved by different people from different organizations. So I agree with you. I think anything that you can do to bring in outside experience um, is important. And then bringing it back to the, the generalist, specialist, and sort of career discussion, that means that your contributions as an individual, when you think about how you're going to plan out your own career, what impact are you going to have, not just on your life, but like on the, the industry or on the world, 
it may not be that straightforward that you're like, you know, here's my company, here's my job, you know, give me my promotion and move straight forward. You might have something to contribute that is in an adjacent or even a distant space. And that requires planning um, and a different way of thinking about, you know, skills acquisition and, and relationships and everything else. Yeah. Did you, Mike, did you ever have somebody that you worked with that was kind of a specialist and for whatever reason, they decided to uh, take a more generalist approach to things. Did you see someone? Did you see someone change their career path for the better and in, in an interesting way? Let me let me. Uh, so short answer is, is yes. And then I'm I'm going to pick on one word there. Um, generalist and specialist, like neither one of them is better. They're just different. <laughs> and so I think I think you can kind of go both from generalist to specialist, and you can go from specialist to generalist. Um, I've seen, so it's like, I was a specialist early on. I had a very narrow set of things that I worked on and then, and then became a generalist over time because I had, you know, the ability to learn and apply things. turns out my, the skills that I have are primarily around communication and convincing people to do stuff, right? I always tell people I can, you know, let's make some bad decisions together. <laughs> and then the other thing I can do is pattern match. Like I'm pretty good at, you know, trying to figure out, find that, find the signal and the noise. There's people, uh, actually, even in like current organizations. So uh, Russ and I have worked with a guy, Dimitri. Dimitri is a specialist for sure. So Dimitri has you know, he's ex VMware. He's done a, a he was on the the customer side years ago. He, I consider him a mad scientist. Right? When you hear, listen to Dimitri talk about stuff, it's like he uh, he is he's deep in in, in the stuff that he's doing. The, the thing that's allowed him to be more effective, actually, the challenge with, with mad scientists is they don't know how to be heard, right? They don't know how to put their their mad scientist thoughts in the context of someone else. So if they don't get paired with somebody who speaks their language, it's going to be very difficult to be heard. For years, I acted as Dimitri's translator. I was his personal translator, and that allowed him to, to find a, a soft landing spot for his ideas. Now, in that effort, he's learned on his own to to become more generalist. Now, I still wouldn't say he's like a complete generalist at this point, but but he's in a position now where he can explain his ideas and thoughts. And it means that he can influence other people um, with great effect. And that means that he has greater impact than he had before, even if the ideas are, you know, his his specialist skills are, are still you know, kind of where they are. He now has the ability to, to, to transcend just other specialists. It's made him wildly more effective. And, and it also means that he doesn't require me to be his personal translator. Um, which means that he can engage, you know, he, he doesn't engage at the speed of Mike. He can engage at, at kind of the, whatever pace he sets for himself. Yeah. So I, th I think part of it too comes back to this question, which we often ask the wrong way. Like we tend to get very career focused and we think I'm trying to build a career. And the reality is you're not trying to build a career in life. You're trying to build a life. And the career is part of the whole picture of the life. And this is a little bit you know, esoteric or soft and squishy for some people. But the reality is, you know, when I go out to look at the next people say, well, why don't you go to your PhD in philosophy? Like, that's so crazy. Like, why would you do such a thing? You're a tech person. Because, hey, philosophy is interesting. And it builds up my entire, like, mental state. I make connections I didn't make before. And I understand language and have mental maps I didn't have before. And so, yeah, I mean... I think part of it is, is that, like you said, instead of building a career ladder, which is very narrow, right? You said this at the very beginning. It's very narrow. It's a very, I'm trying to get to the next rung. I'm trying to get, and this is my singular focus. And you know what? Some people really succeed doing that. They really do. There are a lot of sports stars who really succeed in doing one thing. They can slam dunk in basketball or they can pass in football or, you know, receive or whatever. But 
for the average person, I truly believe it's better to build a life because you're just not, 99% of the people are not going to be that exceptional basketball dude. They're just not. And unless you have it, you focusing on that one thing is just going to be frustrating. It also limits the the aperture of success, right? So yeah. if if you because it's narrow, then success is narrowly defined. Um, there's a couple of risks that that, that come from that. One, I, I ask people all the time, you know, what what is it you want, right? What are you trying to, you know, what do you want to achieve? And and frequently the answer is more, right? They want more title, they want more impact, they want more money, more power. Just they just want more. And when I ask them, like, which of those do you want? The answer is kind of like, you know, I want all of it. I want more. The challenge with more is that there's no end to that, right? So you get more, but then there's no, since there's no like finality, it's like, oh, I, I still want more. You know, one of the things I struggle with, like, when you talk about like building a life, there's people in this world we can point to them. Like, I'll take Elon Musk. I'm going to ignore the whatever Twitter stuff and, and all of that. Let's let's look at Elon Musk a year ago before a lot of this nonsense kind of happened. I mean, he, you know, richest man in the world, you know, great legacy is he, you know, responsible for, you know, space travel and electric vehicles and whatever. And, and, and uh, just for anyone who's, who's more skeptical, I know he bought some of that stuff. I'm not saying he gets full credit, but like he was sitting on, on top of the world, right? You think that like, you know, if anyone in the world is satisfied, it like it must've been him. You know, and he's always sitting, you know, failed marriage, you know, clearly, you know, he's gone through like a bunch of stuff and he's going through things like, how does that happen? You know, I, I don't know what's going on in his life, but I, I can imagine how it happens, right? If you're, if you set up that you always want more then you know, even when you get it, you still want more, you're never satisfied. And so you don't ever have that sense of contentment. There's mm -hmm. no sense of, of, you know, you might have moments of achievement, but you don't have sort of the. Mm -hmm. The, the so, life so, that you're talking about. Yeah, two things there. First of all, it's not just you, it's your whole family. It's everything around you. If you surround yourself with people who just want more, and all of your friends and everything in your social life and everything is more, then it's hard to step away from that. And it also has an impact on your life. Like, you may not be the person who wants more. It may be the person you're married to who wants more all the time. And now that becomes an impossible goal for you, which has a negative impact on the way you as a person are. I mean, this is just, you know, the reality of the world. And the second thing is, is that, you know, this whole, uh, this whole drive for more reminds me of physical fitness, right? I can always build another pound of muscle. I can always run an extra mile. I can always get more fit than I am. Or am I trying to be healthy? Am I trying to be like physically fit? Or am I trying to be Superman, right? And yeah, I lift weights and I exercise and stuff, but I kind of have my limits. Like, all right, that's enough. I do an hour and a half, two hours a week. That's enough. I'm not going to the gym two hours, three hours a day and trying to get, you know, oh, look, I can lift another five pounds. Like, yeah, whatever, who cares? So there's a point where you have to set a plateau and you have to say above this plateau, I'm kind of happy. And that also gives you permission to go do other things. That's what people don't understand. It gives you permission to do other things. I've learned BGP. Now I'm going to give myself permission to go learn other protocols rather than learning every bit in every BGP packet. I've gotten to a level of competence. I'm giving myself permission to go do something, whatever that thing is. I think though there, I think there is room in this, in this discussion though, for people, and I'm not claiming I'm one of these people, but 
I think there is room in this discussion for people who who really do have a place at the top of the mountain, like yeah. people who are True. who are exceptional. And I, and I I think that there are people who could be exceptional that don't know it because of the limiting perspective, like the career ladder way of looking. I think I, you know I I agree with what you're saying, Russ. That you can't think that you're going to have everything. Um, but but also there are people, and we should find them. Uh, we should find those people who are truly exceptional. I've had a few people, um, junior junior to me on whatever um, hierarchy that I could tell are going to be smarter than me, are going to be faster than me and more capable than me in just a few years. And that's always exciting. Like, yes, I got to What can I do for this person while I, while I'm in their sphere? And I can't wait to talk to him in 10 years. I, I th- those kinds of people, I think we also, we need to find them and, and encourage them. I think you want people. So I, I don't want to, to dampen people's ambitions. I think people need to have ambitions. What I want to do is open up the options they have for, for how they pursue those. So in the career ladder model, right, you're you're presuming that the deep contextual understanding is the only path forward. There, the ladder works, right? It just works for a relatively small number of people at a time, right? It's it's going to be you know rate limited or whatever based on however many people are are in the queue at the, at the time. And so if you're in that position and you have deep domain experience and that's particularly fulfilling, then you should continue on that path. But but as you look and you say, well, you know, and if that's an option, right? I would say even a rock climbing a rock climber. If the option straight ahead is there, they'll you know that that frequently is the, the path to go because it might be the simplest. But for other folks, if they, they look a little bit left, a little bit right, what they'll find is that they have you know additional opportunities. And it, and it turns out that that excellence, you know, might arrive not on the back of deeper contextual understanding of of, of whatever the domain is. It might come off the backs of, of skills that I think are more portable. So you know, I've been talking to folks about this idea of, of skills portability, right? A lot of skills, when, when you're when you're a deep specialist, those skills are not always uh, portable. They're not always applicable, even in very adjacent spaces. You know, as we were chatting, you know, sort of before we, we hit the record button, you know, I was, you know, if, if you're really gifted in Wi-Fi, you know, and you were to go get a position, you know, doing, you know, like building backbones, different technology, right? It's still networking. So actually to a non-networking person, they'd be like, oh, it's still networking. It's the same. But we know that like trying to find those positions, <laughs> like it's, you know, different, different skill space, different tools, different technologies, different protocols, different architectures, you know, different products. Um, and so those skills, it turns out as, as deep as you are, they're not, they're not portable to an immediately adjacent space, much less something that's even you know more distant. Now there are skills though that are portable, right? And those skills can they can be technical, right? So there's architectural understanding, there's you know, there's there's uh, operational practices, you know, there's you know broader technology spaces that actually are more portable, right? So so that's that's useful. There's also a set of you know non-technical skills that are very portable, things like strategy and communications, you know, you know, some of the leadership skills, uh, you know, conflict resolution and negotiation. There's all kinds of skills that are that are portable. And the question I think people need to ask is, you know, is is there a foundation of strength? Is it is it domain experience? And if it is, then I think you pick one route. Or is it that they're very good at, at, a, at a class of, of things that are, kind of exist outside the domain? And I can give you like a really dumb example, like a very personal example. But it's kind of, I think it illustrates this. So I, I was uh, years ago. I had a friend who was at University of Michigan Law School, and she wanted to go be an IP patent attorney um, in in Palo Alto. So she came out and she stayed with me for a couple of days. And I drove her around the valley to you know up on Page Mill, which is one of the roads in, in Palo Alto where all the law firms are. 
And then what I would do, I bring my laptop. Um, I was a, a tech writer at slash trainer at the time at a at a um an EDA company, like silicon design type stuff. And uh, and so I sat in the lobby for like four hours while she did this interview. So I'm sitting there just typing away, doing whatever. And this guy rolls up to me and he starts talking to me. And we talk for like two and a half hours. And then my then Danielle comes out from her interview and I'm like, oh, there's my friend, right? So I I walk him up like and I'm like, look, this is Danielle. And I'm like, oh, I realized I didn't get the guy's name. And he's uh, and he's like, oh, he introduces himself. I'm like, wow, that sounds familiar. Yeah, his name was on the wall. He was like the <laughs> named partner. I'm like, oh wow. I'm like, so Danielle. And and then and then he looks at me, he's like, look, Mike, you know, if you ever wanted to go to law or go get into law, you know, we could get you into Stanford Law School and we'd pay for it. You know, we expect you to come and work for us though. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's, you know, I kind of laugh. Like, that's funny. And Danielle's, this is like, she's mad because this is where she wants to work. And this guy's like basically <laughs> offering this to law school. And, uh, and he gives me his card. He's like, no, I'm serious. Like, like, think about it. Now, law wasn't in my future. I wasn't what I wanted to go do. But, but what's interesting is in two, two hours there, like, I know nothing about law, but I had a set of skills that were portable. And he says, like, you know, I, I see the things that you can do and I see how you could apply them in a setting that makes sense for me. And so therefore I would help you make that transition. Now I wasn't ready to, and that wasn't you know a path I wanted to go down. But but having skills that are portable opened up opportunities that were distant. I mean, distant from anything I was doing. Right? I would never even like it wouldn't even occur to me to do like patent law. Like what like what do I know about any of that stuff? But having those portable skills and having cultivated those portable skills, that's like like it, that creates opportunity. And so then the question that, that I, I kind of posed to my the people in my my organization. It's like, how, you know, what is the opportunity you want? You know, how big is that opportunity? Where does that opportunity exist? And what are you doing to surface the opportunities? Do you have the relationships in these adjacent spaces so that if an opportunity existed, you would even know about it? And then what are you doing to, you know, to develop or or cultivate the explicit portable skills that would make you successful in that, in that space? And, And most people, the answer is they're doing nothing on either of those fronts. They don't, they lack the relationships in those spaces to even to even know if there was an opportunity and then they 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 tend to label those portable skills and this this one irritates me they call them soft skills as if that they're not you know there's no they're not trained and practiced in the same way you might practice playing piano or or you know or doing ballet like you have to practice these skills and they're they're they are hard skills but but because we call them soft and, and we and we we sort of devalue them what it does is this the devaluing of those those capabilities it narrows people's um, opportunity. So, like as an industry, right? Maybe even broader than our industry, like we're we're sort of you know collectively responsible for the constricting of opportunity, right? Like that's to me that's sort of an, an egregious outcome of this. Yeah, and and going back to your data center center and Wi-Fi example, there are there are common things in there, but we often don't go look for them, like right. Wi-Fi signals. You have to modulate data onto a signal, a carrier. Well, guess what? If you understand how modulation works, you can understand how it works in optics and electronics. But we don't go back that far. And all the time I hear people say, why would I want to understand modulation? Why would I want to know how to write? I don't like to write. I don't like all that base theory stuff. Give me a problem. I want to go solve it. And that's all they know how to do. And they don't understand that. It's again, it's like weightlifting, right? You go to the gym and if all you ever do is work your arms, 
you're never going to get anywhere as far as physical health goes, right? You're just like, I'm going to lift 10 more pounds on the bench press today. I'm not going to do any overheads. I'm not doing anything else. I'm just doing bench. That's it. I'm going to specialize in the bench. And then you're like, well, five years from now, you can do 200 pounds on the bench press, but you can't do a squat. Like, what good did that do for you? You know, that's totally useless. And so we don't think about like, or even as a weightlifter, for people who do this seriously, again, I don't really do this, but I know people who do, who get all into all the physics of it. Like, okay, if I lift this way, I get this kind of muscle work. If I take proteins before and after, and they get all into the theory. And a lot of people are like, I don't really care about that. Okay, well then, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You're, you're not you're not moving, making the sideways lateral moves that you need to get up that rock wall the way that you would expect in the well, long so, run. It, so it, in terms of adjacencies, uh, you know, just for myself, for a personal example, a couple of years ago, I made a transition uh, into something that was not what I had spent the first part of my career doing. And it's been really interesting, great growing experience for me, highly recommend it. But one of the doubts that I've had, and I think other people have too, um, in moving, in moving sort of, uh, horizontally, I guess, uh, laterally is, well, now I'm in this area where there's a bunch of people who did not make this decision, who are already, uh, very focused, have 10, 15 years, uh, doing this thing. And, and, you know, I like doing it. It's great. I wouldn't change my decision. But sometimes I'm like, have I, have I put myself back unnecessarily? And in, in for my for my own personal decision, I may have, but it's okay because of the other benefits I'm getting from it, and then that I'm offering to other people. But what what would you what would you say about about that concern when you say, okay, it's time for me to do something different, but now I'm going to have to go be with people who did not make that decision and now are uh, some uh, conceptually ahead of me of success for for in, in any field is going to be longevity in the field in research fields that's that's the case by the way but not every field is that way so if you're in a field where where the measure of success is longevity then then yeah you i think you have to to look at that eyes wide open but i don't think most fields are that way um when i joined product management i focused on a set of things that that frankly were uncovered i am i'm a process savant I understand how to get things done. Like uh, I'm, I'm very good at psychology. I know how to affect change. I'm a, a beast when it comes to like pattern matching and, and sort of like strategy bits. And so I applied the things that I that I had, and I actually didn't have the deep domain experience because I wasn't like a lifelong networker and I wasn't a lifelong product manager. I outperformed my peers who had multiple years of experience on me, and essentially propelled my career past them because I did a thing that was different and underserved. In an industry that's dominated by a set of specialized skills, the fact that you're different becomes the thing that you lean on. I think you have to lean into that. If you strategically, if you try to become, if you try to convert a weakness into a strength, your weakness will become mediocre. And that, that, and emphasizing sort of weakness um, elimination will make you merely mediocre at everything. And so you'll never see success. What you'll do is you, you might not get fired, which, you know, hooray for that. That's good. Um, but you won't see like outside success. Um, and so if you want to participate in upside, that will be beyond your reach. Um, and similarly, if, if you go in and and decide you're going to compete on somebody else's axis of, of strength, and that's true at a corporate level, if you want to compete with another company and you're going to use their strategy that they're ahead of you on, then you're going to, predictably, you're going to lose. You're never going to catch up. What you've got to do is redefine what's important. 
So in these roles, the question is, you know, there's always some white space, something that everybody wishes was was done, but hasn't been done. And the question is, you know, can you can you fill that? And do you have a different set of skills to bear? Frequently, that white space exists because people don't have the skills or the way of thinking to address it. And so it goes unaddressed, not because it's not important. It goes unaddressed because it's unaddressable. And if you come in and you address that, then all of a sudden you're, you're seen as a rainmaker. When I moved into the product management role, being a, a kind of a pattern matcher, big you know, systems thinker, I was able to see how all these different things come together to, to, to drive commercial success. Turns out it's not just building a product. You have to have the the enablement and the training and the the go to market motions and sort of all the, the marketing pieces. How do you see all? How do you get all those things together? I was in a unique position to go do that, and my signature contributions were made outside of the core. You know, here's my product, here's my roadmap, but my signature contributions propelled me forward because I did a thing that nobody else could do, or or that nobody else was doing. So I think eyes wide open, look at look at stuff, and if everyone else has the same experience. That actually makes it easier for you because that makes the skills that you have are going to be absolutely outliers in that particular space. Now, again, there's a couple of caveats, right? If, if you're like in a research role, okay, you know, maybe maybe they don't, maybe that's not going to work for you. Like if it's like a pure, you know, research scientist where people have been working in the space for 35 years, fine. But in almost any other practical job, exploit your strengths, exploit your differences, lean into it. Don't make yourself more the same. Make yourself complimentary. Yeah, yeah. And this is true, by the way. This is something I find in jobs every time I go to a job because although people think of me as a specialist, I do just routing protocols. I actually do a lot of other stuff. I do security and encryption and all sorts of stuff and privacy and DNS stuff. And, you know, there's also my, my, my range of skills is pretty, is pretty broad as a, from a technical perspective. And what I find is, is when I walk into a new job, Everyone immediately wants to say, okay, you know how to code? Then you need to go do coding for us, right? They want to pigeonhole you. They want to push you into a spot where they are comfortable and they know what you're doing. And you have to figure out internally, you have to figure out within your organization, how you reach beyond that. How do I make it clear that my value is not in doing this thing you necessarily have everybody else doing? And that you want me to do too, but in reaching beyond that, I don't mind doing that stuff, but that's got to be part of what I'm doing. My strength is not in doing that one thing all the time. I need to like spread out. And I think that takes negotiation with your manager, showing value, having a good personal network. I mean, every job I walk into, 90% of the time this happens for me because people know who I am. And somebody in the organization will say, oh, you're here? Oh, we could use you over here. My manager at first always says, no, 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 no. That's not your job. And then six months later, they're all like, oh, wait a minute. That actually added value. That was really important to the larger company. And then that's how you, you have to like think about this. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Mike, on, on more than that, but that's just my experience. There might be more communicable or, or official ways of doing that that so I, I describe jobs as, as there's work you have to do and there's work you get to do, right? And in any given week, you know, it may be 80-20, it may be 90-10, it may be 100-0, everything, you're just loaded up. But there's always some discretionary time. And, and the question is, how do you apply that time? And, and, and in those moments, you know, can you essentially make your signature impacts? 
I think people's signature impact, the thing that they stand for, their breakthrough contribution, I think it rarely comes in the form of work you have to do. That's typically like, here's the scope of the role. Here's this thing I need you to go do. You're not going to, you're not usually going to exceed expectations on that because you're, you're doing what's expected. So the question is outside of that, especially if you want to give yourself a little bit of a turbo boost from the career side, it's like, what are you going to do? And this isn't, let me be clear. This isn't working more hours. This is like within whatever your normal work week is, 40 hours, 50 hours, you know, hopefully not more than that. You know, what are you, what are you doing? Now, there's people who say they don't have any discretionary time. And so I, I was mentoring a guy actually, you know, gosh, maybe a decade ago. And he he desperately wanted to, to change his lot in life. He wanted to move into a different role. And he said he had no discretionary time. And he had built up this narrative in his head that he didn't, that, that the world was set up against him, that, you know, somehow people were plotting and, and, and conspiring to make sure he couldn't get ahead. And so, you know, I, at some point, you know, I, I coached him for, coached him, coached him, coached him. And he came in one night. I said, look, you know, are you ready for some, some, some tough coaching here? And he's like, yeah, that's, that's fine. I says, you're pretty good at, at foosball. turns out we had a foosball table in the break room. He's like, he kind of, he smiled. He's like, yeah, pretty good. Like you weren't like when we first got the foosball table, I used to be able to beat you. I can't even come close now. He's like, yeah, I'm like you play every day, right? He's like, yeah, I mean, we play like at lunch and we play during breaks. I'm like, so how many days a week do you think you play foosball? And he's like, ah, oh, we play every day, right? So it's five days a week. I'm like, okay, so you play like 45 minutes at lunch. You play like, you know, your break time. He's like, yeah. How long have you been doing that? Like a year. I said, okay, so basically you put in, right? Let's say 200 days. You've put in 400 hours, 400 hours into foosball over the last year, right? How much time have you put into this new career thing? You want it like you, you, you talk about your career dissatisfaction. And he's like, uh, I said, here's what I want you to do. Go home to your wife tonight and explain to her how much time you've put into foosball versus how much time you've put in to the promotion you're trying to get. Like, tell her the numbers and then let me know how that conversation goes. And, you know, like silence. Like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take breaks. I'm not saying that, that you got to be focused all the time. You know, we don't have the cognitive stamina to go do that. That's not the point. The point is that there, there is discretionary time and how you choose to use that time is it's up to you, you know, but, but uh, those choices will have, have consequences or they'll have benefits. And so you got to think it through a little bit. Um, what mm -hmm. I think people need to do is they need to be, you need to, to think about what your discretion, what's, what's the signature impact you want to have? What's your discretionary time going to be? And then go and do that. And if you put even like two hours, four hours in a week towards something that is currently unsolved in a, in a company or in an organization, you'll make more progress than, than has been made there in six or 12 or 18 months because nobody was trying to solve it before. And when you go and you do that and you find that there's passion in it, that becomes a like, like that impact, you start seeking impact and you'll put more time into it because it's because it's driving change. And as you do that, here's the important part of the career side. The way you get progression in career is not by doing the things that are expected of you. It's by delivering things that are unexpected. Well, the, the easiest way to deliver unexpected value is not to take something that has lofty expectations and then surmount those. That's like impossible. You take something where there's zero expectations and you deliver anything, you're a rainmaker. And it doesn't have to be a lot of effort. I'll give you like a really stupid example. I joined product management. Frankly, the job I joined, it wasn't a full-time job. I got there the, like within the, on the first day, I'm like, don't know what the previous guy was doing. This isn't a full-time job. 
And so I was just looking for things to do. And so I created an internal website back then and I go with, with just, here's all the product management team. I put all the present presentations in one place. I put roles and responsibility. I, I spent an afternoon. I spent like literally three hours doing this. And once I did it, I was like, oh my God, I guess it solved. It turns out I accidentally solved a really, a real problem for the field because they didn't know who to go to with stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, Mike, the rainmaker, the new PLM who came in and was like, I'm like, gosh, all I was really trying to do was fill my time up because I had nothing to do. It was an unmet need. Now, looking back, if I, you know, knowing what I know now, I went back and redid my career. I'd be like, look, I'd be looking all around for unmet needs because some of that stuff can be solved really, really quick. Especially given like, you know, the unique skills or strengths that you might have. And what that does is that builds up a, a you start building a, like a halo around you know, what it is you're capable of. And again, if that's built around the, the things that you're uniquely good at and these skills that are kind of portable, what that's going to do is open up all kinds of avenues for, for where you want to go. That, that, and, and you build a reputation, you build relationships for people who consume that. Like, like that's where I think, I mean, if, if I were guiding myself anyway, that's the career advice I would have given to, you know, 23 year old me. Yeah, I think that's really good, actually, is go find unmet needs and go do them, build them, do something with them, try to fix them. And not to say, again, that you shouldn't do your job, right? Not to say that you shouldn't do what you're expected to do, but that there's always places where you can step in the middle and say, oh, but I can do this, or I can do it in a different way that nobody's ever done it before. And that makes all the difference. Well, finding finding the unmet needs would uh, result in relationships all by itself, even if you never do anything with them. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, if you, I don't think people focus on relationships enough. By the way, I like if that's the other piece of coaching I would give my twenty three year old self. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. People ask me all the time, "How do you know all these people? How do you sustain a podcast?" Blah blah blah. It's because I'm, it's because I just have met people over the years, and you just walk up and talk to them. You know, you say hi. <laughs> how many, just to guess, just to generalize, just for fun, how many things like this, like that you mentioned, you know, putting together stuff so people could find out where, where you were, how many of these unmet needs do you think exist, exist in a typical Fortune 500 company? Are there like four oh things God. like that? Are there like a thousand? Oh, it's probably hard to teach. In, in my org, so I, I, I you know, I run a, a, an, a kind of an extended team. Like the direct team is probably, you know, I don't know, 60 people. And then there's like another, you know, engineering team that sits behind that. Even in just the product side of it, there's at least a couple dozen. I mean, I, like I'm in a product org, right? I mean, so if anyone on my org is listening, I'll tell you what my unmet needs are, right? This is easy. You know, presentation skills. Like frequently we focus on the presentation, but like, where's the program that gives people the the practice and exposure to other parts of the portfolio, right? Like there's a whole thing around like around that, you know, does anyone going to come in and identify that as like a primary function? No, because I'm not hiring somebody to, to improve presentation skills across the entire org. But like, I would love to get, you know, better information sharing there, you know, surveillance into, into customers, you know, so we have we understand what our deployments look like, and then we cross pollinate information on you know how all that stuff works. There's all kinds of planning things. There's portfolio planning and visibility. And there's like literally dozens of things, and the way to surface those turns out not that hard. Literally, ask a question of anyone in your organization. Is there anything that that 
you wish was done, but like no one's had time to do. And you could talk to the, to the leader of the organization. Someone came to me, I would list off like, you know, here's a dozen things that would matter to me. I would love that they got done. Right. Or talk to people who are like, you know, in peering organizations and say like, you know, is there anything else like, like ignoring the, the mainline stuff, right? Is there anything that's just like, you wish it was solved? Like, what are your pain points? Like, what are the things that are kind of the annoying grievances that you have that are too small to like, you know, really raise a stink about, but man, they would just really make a difference. Just ask those questions. It's not cryptic. You don't have to like, you know, you don't need like, like uh, some kind of divinity to tell you, you know, what's going on. You just ask people, what are they dealing with? And then you surface stuff. It's like, it's amazing. I had a, I'll tell you like a, like a, a just a really dumb example of, of this dynamic, by the way. Uh, I was at, uh, this is a brocade. I had a, a marketing peer, just a, a, a genuinely awesome person. And she, you know, she would, we would talk, we would talk every month and, and, but I was kind of hard on marketing. And so she asked me, she's like, Mike, why are you hard on marketing? I said, because you're not doing what I need you to do. She's like, what do you mean? Like, we have a great relationship. I'm like, yeah, we have a great relationship. That doesn't mean you're doing what I need you to do. And she's like, okay, well, you know, help. And I'm like, okay, well, so, so what do you think my biggest problem is? And so she's like, oh, she kind of confidently said, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that's not my biggest problem. And she went, okay. And then she put some thought into it. She's like, oh, well, your biggest problem is, you know, whatever. And I said, that's not my biggest problem either. And she went, she kind of got really confused. And she said, is it? And she gave me a third option. I'm like, that's not my biggest problem. I said, you want to know what my biggest problem is? You know, the easiest way to, to find out what my biggest problem is? Just ask me. We've been meeting monthly for a year and you literally have never asked me, what do I, like, what do I deal with? And so she, she paused and she said, Mike, what's your biggest problem? And I told her, and then at every meeting after that, she would kind of, as a joke, she would ask me, Mike, what do you, what's your biggest problem today? Um, I, I tell that example, the, the thing that people miss is they're, they're looking for some kind of, you know, aha moment. They're looking for some top-down guy. Just, just ask the question, just ask the question. And, and if you ask this, it's just a simple question. What are you dealing with? What are you worried about? You'll get to know the person as an individual because you'll hear what they're what's top of mind for them. And then you put yourself in a position that maybe you can help. And if you do that, again, like on the go back to the career ladder thing, if you can identify the opportunities where, where there's unmet needs and the intersection of those opportunities and your skills, that's going to give you the greatest opportunity for advancement. And that may not be, you know, vertically, it may be sideways yeah. and up. But like that's like that playbook. People are afraid to ask questions, especially when they talk higher in the organization. They always want to give you status. I don't need status. I know what's going on. How are you doing? And then ask me a question. Like, I, I'll tell you, the, the people I always make time for, always. Uh, my schedule sucks. Russ can attest, right? He was in the org for a while. My schedule sucks. Like 40, 45 hours of meetings a week. It's crazy. But I will always move stuff for people, for certain people. Because you know what? When I meet with them, they start off, they, it, it, it's not transactional. They ask me a simple question. Like, how's it going? What can, what can I do to help you? The person who asks me that question, I will meet with every week. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I think, and I think that's something we often miss, is that when we talk about networking, we often treat relationships as transactional. What can I get mm -hmm. from this? What can I give to that person? No. It's a relationship. That person is a person. And Russ is a good example of this. Russ, I'll, 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 I'll call you out on this. You are a good example of this. 
So in this broader org with all those meetings, I set up, a, uh, I made sure that I had time with Russ every other week just to make sure we stayed connected. So Russ was talking to like the boss's boss's boss or whatever the org thing was, right? And like, you know, oh, and, and, and I'm so, you know, unapproachable and I don't have time. I made time because every time I talked to Russ, like half the time he would be asking me what he could do to help me out. We just get like a like an actual like conversation. I mean, even like as we're recording this podcast, like I'm in the middle of a really difficult work week. I'm like, oh, I always have time for you guys, always, because the, the, it's the power of relationship. Like it's just it's over it's overlooked. And I mean, like like so, Russ. I mean, you're you're exceptional at this. You're you're a servant leader, right? You believe in fundamentally in helping other people. Your your entire worldview I'm is around that. Man, over here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's. That's but it's true. true. I mean, I I always had I, I you always had access because 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 of the investment you made in the, in the people side. And so if I were to look and, and then kind of to take again take it full swing, like if I look and say what's Russ's superpower, Russ does, talks eloquently about you know BGP and and ISIS and, and Rift. His superpower is on the people side. And so like that's a portable skill. It turns out that even if you lifted, I will I'll predict that if you lifted Russ up and you put him into another organization that was not even in networking, right? Put him into some other IT role, like in the on the app dev side or whatever, I would predict that he would have success. And that success wouldn't be based on this contextual understanding of a of a of a of a narrow field. It would be, it wouldn't even be based on his his adjacent understanding of DNS and whatever. He listed off all the stuff he knows. It wouldn't be that. It would be based on a set of portable skills that are true. I could pick Russ up. I could put him into biotech and Russ would have success because he understands systems. He can think broadly and he understands people. And those skills, those are portable, which means that Russ, if he wanted, if, if, if tech melted down, if all of a sudden there was no networking at all, Russ would still have a career. How many people can say that? How many people have fully, have fully, developed those portable skills so that they're useful in any context like that's that that's the point wow that's really good that you said that mike i'm glad you that you see that in me <laughs> true <laughs> so uh, you know and, um, it's actually funny the whole if you look at like the the folks who drive a lot of the the so i'll take like take greg farrow and the the, the packet pushers guys they some people believe that their contribution is really around packet pushers. Right? It's, I mean, it's literally named after networking. You look at what they've actually done, right? You know, um, it's, it's just it's broader than that. Yeah. Like so, like for, for folks who are in our little universe, you look at the people that you look up to, the people you've heard of, the people you think about. Um, you know, Yvonne Papelniak, same like it's, it's yeah. I was gonna say Yvonne, are much broader because Yvonne didn't just build his own thing; he built a platform for other people. And there are training companies I will not work with because when I work with them, I feel like they're trying to build themselves up rather than giving you as somebody who has a voice in the industry. Like they want to grab your voice. They don't want to help you or it's not, it's not even a trade-off. It's not even about a relationship. It's about I'm taking your material and it's mine now. Thank you. We're done. It's like, no, I won't work with you if you're like that. Sorry. It's just, it's not, not the way it works. So yeah. So I'm kind of out of questions, and I know Mike has a busy week, <laughs> and I know that Tom probably has something at two o'clock, and so we should probably <laughs> wrap up. Even though we could continue talking for 14 hours about these topics and just transition to something else, 
uh, it's always great having you on, Mike. We should have you on more often uh, whenever I can get the schedule set up for you to come on again. I'm sure I get you on every couple of three months to talk about this kind of stuff because I think it's really important. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? Uh, you can find me on on Twitter and LinkedIn. Don't do much okay. on Twitter, but I'm there and I just search for my name. And Mike, where can people find you? And M. Bouchon on both Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Okay. Um, t- Twitter's a tire fire, though, so good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I always tell people, but this comes on my dissertation, too. That I really do not log in and do PM on a lot of services. My email address is so easy to find. Just find my email address and email me. Like, PMing me on Twitter is, is a black hole. I, I, I also met at Cisco. When I worked at Cisco, I actually changed my voicemail to say, if you want to get in touch with me, please email me. This is my email address. I probably won't answer this voicemail. <laughs> like, you know, that's horrible. But it just got to the point where I was like, I just can't handle this anymore. <laughs> so, again, Mike, thanks for coming on. And we will look forward to having you on again in the future. And if any of you listeners out there want to ask any questions or have us do any particular topic here on The Hedge or have somebody you want to listen to, please. Let us know. We're always looking for good guests and looking for good topics. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Hedge, and we will catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.